Welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Church. We're currently teaching through the Gospel of John. Covenant Grace Church is one church meeting in multiple locations. This message was recorded at our Menifee campus. Good morning, everyone. Once again, um, I'll be reading from John 2, chapter 13, or I'm sorry, verse 13 through 25. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple, with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers, and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away, do not, take these things away, do not make. My father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What a sign, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken forty six years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Verse 23. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. This is the word of God. Thanks, Michelle. That's great. Um, Thank you guys for being here. My name is Eric Cobb. I'm one of the pastors here. And um, if you have any questions about the church or the things that we're doing, I'd be happy to answer those afterwards and we can talk. Um, I'll probably be out that way. They always want to put me over here, but I don't really want to be here. And so I'll be over there because everybody just takes off, right? And then you're up here stuck, you know, and nobody comes to see you. It's very sad. Um, I have one more announcement. Yeah, Melissa is very sad. Um, I have one more announcement, which is that we have a podcast now, and so um, that doesn't mean you don't need to come anymore, but uh, there's a podcast now, and so on iTunes, if you look for us, you'll find us, so Covenant Grace Church, Menifee, and then if you're Android people, I'm sorry, but there is a way for you too, you can go SoundCloud app, so if you go on there and search us, it's on there, so um, Wes uh, said that if you're Android people, we'll have people scheduled to pray with you in the background uh, here, back of the room. Um, let's pray and we'll get started. Father, we, we are so thankful for you. We're so thankful that you're the kind of God who, who is faithful to meet his children here. Lord, we're all kind of assembled around your table. We're here for you to feed us, to give us life, to help us move forward into this week. And Lord, we know that you consistently feed your kids. And so, Lord, I come in that confidence, uh, not in the confidence that I've prepared something wonderful, Lord, but the confidence that you want to feed your sheep. You want to feed your lambs, your kids. And Lord, I need to be fed by this as well. And so I pray that you would come, you would feed us. Lord, we pray that we would open our hearts to you today. Lord, that we would not stubbornly close ourselves in to what you have to say to us, Lord, but that we would open our hearts to you, knowing that you love us. You are the maker of our hearts. You love us. You want to uh, help us, to give us life. And I pray for those here, Lord, that don't know you, Lord, that, that they would have that encounter with you this morning, that would open their eyes to the beauty and the wonder of your Son. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So here we are in John chapter 2, verse 13, and this passage gives us a very unusual picture of Jesus, a very unusual and surprising picture of Jesus. And I didn't realize this really because I'd heard it so many times, it didn't seem that surprising to me. Some of you guys who kind of grew up in the church and heard this story a bunch of times, you may not, oh, there he goes, cleansing the temple again. Um, but when I read it to my boys several years ago, I remember Mason got real quiet. You know, I was reading the, the message children's Bible, and they had this account in there of Jesus cleansing the temple, which isn't in a lot of children's Bibles, and I found out why. Because as I'm reading it, he's like, oh, he goes, Daddy, I thought Jesus never sinned. You know, because he's seeing this outburst of anger, and he's thinking this is an example of Jesus sinning. And so we had this good conversation about righteous anger and that there's something called righteous indignation which is a good thing and it's part of why we praise Jesus and so we're going to look at that this morning and so we're going to get to see Jesus angry and I say get to because um, you can learn a lot about a person by what makes them angry now Josh you know disobediently uh, changed the question during uh, our greeting time you would have learned a lot about each other from this question although it could have been some unrighteous anger occurring, too, so we don't want to do that. Um, but you can learn a lot about a person by seeing what, what, what makes them angry. Jesus here is, he's not angry out of fear, like we would be. He's not angry out of wounded pride, which we are often angry about. He's not angry because he's got control issues, okay? Jesus is angry for very good reasons, and when we see why he's angry here, we'll actually worship him all the more. Turns out Jesus is the kind of person that even his anger is beautiful, isn't that wild? Every facet of him is altogether beautiful, and we're going to see that in this passage. First, let's look at why is he angry. Why is he angry? Let me set the stage for you. This occurred in, in early April of 30 AD. I know the date because um, it says that in verse 13 that the Passover was at hand. We know in, in the year 30 AD, the Passover was on April 7th. We can know these things. And so here he is walking in to Jerusalem during the Passover week. And now the Passover week is the, one of the most important Jewish holidays. And it remembers the time when God rescued his people from Egypt, when they were in bondage under Pharaoh. He sent Moses. Originally, Pharaoh did not want to let the people go, right? You guys remember your felt boards now? Didn't want to let the people go. And so um, he sent plagues, right? And there were 10 plagues, and they got worse and worse as they went on. And the last plague was the killing of the firstborn. And what God did, though, before he did that, before he sent that plague onto Egypt, because they wouldn't let God's people go, he told the people of Israel, he said, put some blood of a lamb on your doorposts, and if you do that, I will pass over your house. I'll skip your house. I won't judge your house. And so it's called Passover because he passed them over, over from judgment. Um, so this time in Jerusalem would have been packed. People came from all over the place, uh, pilgrimages to this area. And so he enters the temple, and what does he find? Look at verse 14. He found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and money changers sitting there. Um, these animals are not being sold as pets, right? These animals are there to be sold as sacrificial animals. Um, and it was convenient, okay? You have people that have come long, long distances, right? It's hundreds of miles sometimes, and many of them have walked. And for them to try and drag an animal behind them, like I have a disobedient dog I can't even walk, you know? Imagine trying to walk a cow or an oxen or something like that that doesn't want to go. You know, maybe it kind of knows what's up. Um, it doesn't want to go. This was convenient for them. They could just show up. They could buy an animal that was acceptable for sacrifice. They didn't have to run the risk of something happening to the animal on the way. It's a convenience. 
It was also convenient to have money changers there. During that time, you, um, you needed to, um, men that were 20 or over had to pay a temple tax. It paid for the things that were going on in the temple, totally reasonable. And, um, but it was to be in a certain coinage that had a really pure silver content. And so they needed to exchange it. Not everybody had one of those. And so um, and this, these services, which are good for services, they're convenience. They're to help these people that are doing their pilgrimage. It's a good thing. It used to be done, though, on the slope of the Mount of Olives, which was over the Kidron Brook. It wasn't very far away from the temple, but it wasn't in the temple. At some point, though, they decided, let's make it even more convenient. You know, let's bring it into the temple. And so that's what Jesus is seeing as he walks in, is that they're doing this business in the temple. And in John's account here, there's no, there's no evidence in John's account, at least, that they're doing anything um, shady, that they're ripping people off or anything like that. What's, what's Jesus' concern in this passage? It's not the shadiness of their dealings, but look at verse 16. Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. The issue is the location. He's like, you can do that out there. There's plenty of other places you can do that. You can't do that here. It's the location. And this enrages Jesus. It enrages him that there's business happening in the temple. You think to yourself, what's the big deal? The big deal is that the temple during that time was the focal point of their relationship with God. This was the meeting place between God and man. If you wanted to meet with God, the temple was the place to do it. It was a very special location. Also, compounded by the fact that they decided to do this in the court of the Gentiles. And it's important that you kind of understand the lay of the land of the, of the temple. There were multiple kind of compartments or parts to the temple. The, the very inner part of the temple was called the Holy of Holies. And the Holy of Holies was the place where the Ark of the Covenant used to be. Once a year only, the high priest could go in there and offer a sacrifice for himself and the people. It was once a year, the high priest only, very exclusive. The next layer out would have been the holy place. This is a place where any of the male Jewish priests could come, and they could come in that area and do their ministry work, and that was there. It was exclusive just to priests. And then there was another layer outside of that that was exclusive just to Jews. And there was an eastern and a western court. They were for, one part was for purified Jewish men. One part was for purified Jewish women. And then outside of that, the very outer layer, is the court of the Gentiles. And that was the only place that was open to everybody. Anybody could come in. You didn't have to be Jewish. You didn't have to be purified. You could come into that area, the court of the Gentiles. The court of the Gentiles was the only place where an outsider could come near the worship of God. It was the only place where they could come and seek God. And this is important because Israel was created as a nation to be a light to all the nations. They were created to be a people group that would show who the true God is. And the temple was designed in this way to receive them. Um, It says in Isaiah 56, 7, listen to God's heart. This is in the Old Testament for what his temple was for. And you think, court of the Gentiles. Listen to this, Isaiah 56, 7. God says, foreigners I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar For my house shall be called the house of prayer for all peoples. Does that surprise you? Does it surprise you to hear that in the Old Testament? That the temple was meant to have a receiving area for all the nations. God has always had his eye on the nations. It wasn't about him being a, a tribal deity or a national deity. He has always wanted all peoples to come to him. And so the court of the Gentiles was like the evangelistic area. It was the missional area of the temple. 
It was like the visitor center, right? You could, you could come and you could, you could see and hear and smell the worship of God. You could come and ask questions. You know, you could inquire in his temple about him. And people would answer your questions and you could come to understand him. And people could actually become and be received into Israel as they repented and believed in the God of Israel. Guys, this was the only place for them to see clearly that God is not a national deity but loves all people. That's what this place was for. And this is the place that the high priest said, let's put the market there. You see how unjust that is? You see how enraged Jesus would be with this? This is the one place these people can come and know God and see him. And the high priest goes, oh, let's just sell the junk there. You know, let's just do our money changing there. And guys, it was worse than a swap meet. The uh, first century Josephus, uh, first century Josephus, he was a Jewish historian. He said that as many as 255,000 animals would have been purchased and sacrificed that week. I don't even know how big this place is. That sounds insane. 255,000 animals being purchased and sacrificed in one Passover week. Imagine the noise of that place. Imagine you're a Gentile and you've come from hundreds of miles away and you just come to go, maybe there's something to this God here. And you hear, you know, the cows bellowing, you hear the sheep, you hear the haggling and the money changers. Imagine the smell in that place. You know, this was like worse than a combination of a rodeo and like the trading floor of the New York Stock Exchange. I mean, (laughs) this place is crazy, you know, to think about somehow you're going to come and learn anything. And remember, this is the only place outsiders can come and draw near to God. And they come and find that. So let me ask you this question. You're a Gentile. You're an outsider. You're a non-Jew. You come into this place. What impression do you leave with? You come away from this place, and I want to ask you this. What did you conclude about Yahweh? What did you conclude about the God of Israel? What do you guys think? What would you think? What would your impression be? You know, I'll tell you what my impression was. I mean, this is his house, right? You know a lot about it people being invited to your house. They come into his house and this is what they see. What do they think? See what I think they think. I think they think, man, this God must be hungry. You know, he just must be real hungry. We need to feed him. Oh, this God, he's short on cash. Look at him. He's just begging for cash, you know, or, you know, this God's obviously powerless to meet his own needs. He needs all these people to constantly be propping him up with, with money and food and things like that. Guys, what are the odds that anyone would leave that place with a meaningful relationship with God? It's like zero, right? I mean, maybe it's not zero, but it's like zero. I mean, there's very little chance here, guys. The commercialization of religion is still a massive issue, isn't it? You guys notice? Still an issue. There's the quote-unquote prosperity gospel, okay? Prosperity gospel, which is that you can have financial blessing from God. It's God's will that you be rich, And the way you can get those riches is by having faith, having positive speech. So say, I'm not poor, I'm rich, right? Say that enough. And making donations to certain ministries will increase your wealth. That's a prosperity gospel. Guys, that's not a gospel. What does the word gospel mean? Good news. It is not good news that God is a cosmic stockbroker that gets you great exchanges on your investments. Like, that is not a gospel. So you can call it prosperity theology. I prefer prosperity heresy. That'd be a great word for it. Um, You can say other things that I can't say here. Um, Use whatever words you want. But this is something that's a heresy, right? And it's been going on then. It's going on now. And these people have jets and they have mansions. I mean, Benny Hinn had a mansion right here. You guys know that in La Cresta? One of his houses. 
This is the one when he wanted to slum it, right? So he'd be up in the hills there. And he wanted to ride a horse or have his grandkids ride a horse or something like that. You know, he, I, I know this because I've been there, not while he was there, but later the people that bought it from him. He left because they wouldn't let him build a 12-foot-high block wall around his property. Because it would look ridiculous. I mean, it's like a fortress, right? So he's like, I'm out of here, you know? Multiple houses. These people steal from the poor. They don't get their money from upper-middle-class people. They get their money from poor, desperate people. They get their money from poor, desperate countries. That jet lands a lot in places that are poor, where people are desperate. And they hear this prosperity gospel, and they think, oh, that's good news. God wants me to be wealthy. I guess I'll give you a little, you know? You have enough givers of that small amount. You get a lot of money. Does that bother you? Does it bother you? One of the common objections when you invite somebody to church or talk about Christianity is you go, oh, the church, they just want your money. Right? It's a common thing. It still goes on today. If that bothers you guys, I have good news for you. It infuriates Jesus. He's not just like a little annoyed with it. He's infuriated. That's what we see in this passage. You want to talk about righteous anger? That's righteous anger. It bothers him. And look at him. It's not just words. He acts. But what's interesting is he doesn't just walk in and fly off the handle, right? He plans and he plots. Do you know how I know? It says he made a whip. Okay? The guy did not, you know, grab somebody's whip, you know, or he brought his own or he bought one. He's sitting in the corner there. He's braiding a whip. And he's thinking about, I'm taking these people out of here. Isn't that awesome? And so he made a whip. Take a look at verse 15. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he took those who sold pigeons and said, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house has consumed me. Guys, he's got zeal for this, you know? It's not like he comes in and it's all loud and he's like, um... Hey guys, um, I don't know how to say this. Like, if you could just, if you could take your stuff, and I know this is a bummer, but if you could put it outside, I mean, people will still be able to. He doesn't do that, does he? No. He says, Get out of my father's house. Isn't that awesome? Don't you love that about Jesus? I love this picture of Jesus. Jesus has, he's passionate. Why is he passionate? He's passionate because this is about heaven and hell. And he's driving cattle out of the place. You guys ever try to move cattle? Even with a whip, it's a real pain, okay? I'm a veterinarian, and when I was in vet school, we had cattle as patients. And uh, you can't move these things. They're like 1,600 pounds. And you push them, and you whack them with a little thing, and they don't care. They just look back at you. We actually had these things called a hot shot. Do you guys know what a hot shot is? It's a pole with a battery and two prongs, and you electrocute them in the butt, okay? They still don't move. <laughs> You're like, bzz, bzz. you know, some of the guys on... on uh, and large animal medicine, they were like getting each other with it, you know, and it wasn't fun. And they couldn't get these things to move. Jesus is somehow driving all of these people out of here. I mean, the power of this man, right? And he's overturning tables. He's not like, hey, count your coins, get out of here. He's like knocking them over, you know? He's throwing things around. He's passionate because this is about heaven and hell, guys. This is about removing obstacles between people and what they need most. Guys, what we need most, every one of you in this room, including me, what we need most is to be reconciled to our God. And if we do not solve that problem here in this life, it will have eternal consequences forever. And so he's passionate about this. He, their eternity depends on it. When, when religion tries to put obstacles between us and him, he responds violently and tears it down. 
He's making it clear. What's he making clear? He's making it clear that your access to God is free of charge. Isn't that awesome? Your access to God is free of charge. And if you're going to put a bunch of garbage in between people and God, Jesus is going to be infuriated. He's going to ruin your party. He's going to destroy things. This, guys, is his furious love. We think about him angry here. Think about this as his furious love. And guys, whether you're a Christian or not today, you have to like this about Jesus. I mean, come on, who doesn't like this about Jesus? Even if you're not a Christian, you like this about Jesus. The only person that doesn't like this about Jesus are the people that are making money. And they have questions. Take a look at verse 18. So the Jews, and this is the Jewish leadership, not just Jewish people in general, the Jewish leadership, the religious leaders, the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Okay, this is a totally appropriate question. They really, though, should have asked the question, is he right? I think that would be the best first question. Is like, he wants to stop this, is he right? But that's not their first question. Their first question is, what's your sign for doing these things? How do we know that it's appropriate for you to be here and do these things? It's a reasonable question. The temple's their domain. The temple's something they're in charge of. This is their living. This is their house. This is where they are day in, day out. And they can't just hand over the keys of this place to whoever kind of comes in and has claims. I mean, a guy that comes in and says, get out of my father's house. I mean, to say, um, get out of my father's house. To say our father's house would be kind of normal in that context. To say my father's house is to say, this is my house. Okay? And so that implies authority. And so they say, can you prove it? Is there something you could do to prove this? Um, To prove your authority over this place? I think this is a question, though, that some of you guys today might be asking in your own lives. You might be asking the question of, what gives Jesus authority in my life? Um, Because, you know what? Jesus wants to invade your life, too. Okay? He wants to get in your house. He wants to mess with your stuff. Okay? Jesus is, he's come to clean your house, (laughs) to clean it out, to turn over some tables, And you might ask, what authority does he have, right? What authority does Jesus have in my life? What right does he have to tell me how to live my life? It's a reasonable question. I don't expect you to hand the keys over to your life to any old person who asks for them, right? That's reasonable, just like it's reasonable for these people. And I understand, guys, in this kind of multicultural, global society where we have so many different voices about, you know, the way to truth, the way to God, what our cosmic purpose is, the good life, whatever... Everybody's got something to say about it. Why Jesus? Why does Jesus have the authority? Why should we listen to him? Um, who should we listen to? You know, there's lots of options. Do, do Muhammad and Buddha and Deepak Chopra and your college professor and Oprah all have equal standing in this discussion? You know, do, can any of them be, be an authority? Do all of them have something good to say? Is there one that's better than the others? It's a good question. What does Jesus give as an answer? Answer of his authority, look at verse 19. He says, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. The sign that Jesus gives to prove his authority over the temple, over their lives, over your life, over my life, over the whole world, is his resurrection from the dead. He goes, you want a sign? I've got a sign for you. But they're confused, aren't they? They say, well, you know, it's taken 46 years to build this thing. You're going to do it in three days? You know, They're confused. They don't know what he means by temple. They don't know that he means his body. Guys, we too are confused about the resurrection. I think as I hear Christians talk about it, as even I think about it, sometimes we're confused about what is his sign. The resurrection or his sign is not just that after Jesus died, he went to heaven and he can live on now in your hearts. Okay, That's not the resurrection. The resurrection is not 
um, Jesus triumphed over death by going to heaven, and someday you will go to heaven too. That's not the resurrection. What's the resurrection? I want to be real concrete with you. This is the resurrection. So here we are. We're Passover week, 30 AD, right? Three years later, in 33 AD, he dies on a Friday in Passover week. He dies on a cross, uh, nailed through his wrists, nailed through one spike through his two feet, hangs on a cross. After six hours of agony, he breathes his last breath. Soldiers bring him down. They're trained in how to kill people. They make sure he's dead by spearing him in the heart. Then they take him and they put him in a sealed tomb, has a big stone over it. Friday night, he's a dead body. Okay, there's no getting around. Jesus' body, his real physical body, is a normal dead body. He's dead. Okay, that Friday night, his body would have dropped to the temperature of the tomb. You know, we're talking April time. You know, springtime of the year, it would have been cold at night. His body would have pulled down to the bottom of his body with gravity. Um, within 12 hours, rigor mortis would have set in. He is a normal dead body. There's no sugarcoating it. It's not like he's a different kind of dead body. He's a glorified dead body. He is a dead body with real wounds, holes in his side, holes in his hands. He's just been through six hours of excruciating punishment. He's dead. They put him in the tomb. It's guarded by soldiers all Saturday and, and um, Saturday night. He's a dead body. He's still dead. He's laying there in the tomb. Sunday morning, though, around dawn, something happens in the tomb. And I don't know exactly how the order of this happened, but it's something like this. All of a sudden, this dead body with all its blood pulled in the bottom and his eyes sunken and, you know, he's rigor mortis, he's dead. All of a sudden, that body, which has started to stink at that point, all of a sudden, his heart starts to beat again. His literal, physical, biological heart like you have starts to beat again. And then blood starts to swirl again throughout his veins and his arteries. His color returns. He becomes warm. There's a twitch of a finger, a twitch of a toe. The eyes start to move. And then all of a sudden, <gasps> the first time his, his lungs have ever felt air in three days, he breathes a first gasp. Isn't that amazing? Then he stands up. I assume he stretches. <laughs> Lots of popping, right? And then he gets up and he walks out. Alive, physically alive. And, you know, his friends were thinking, oh, when they see him, they think, oh, it's a ghost, it's a spirit. They weren't expecting this. This isn't something they expected. They thought he was completely dead. He was completely dead. He comes back to life. What does he do? He spends 40 days with them saying, hey, check me out. Feel my wounds. You know, stick your finger in there. I don't care. It doesn't hurt. You can, you can do it here. He eats with them. He spends 40 days with them to prove to them that he's alive. He is biologically, physically alive. He teaches them. He eats with them. They touch him. Forty days later, he ascends in his physical body, takes it with him, up to heaven. Guys, this is the greatest accomplishment in human history. Okay? I challenge you, what's the better accomplishment than that? He has been raised biologically, physically from the dead. It's the greatest accomplishment in human history. Guys, this is that huge neon sign in human history that points this way to God. You think about all the voices, you think about, you got Muhammad, you got Buddha, you're a college professor, you got Oprah, you got all these people, right? Who are you going to listen to? We're going to listen to the one that came back from the dead, physically walked out. Love this. I mean, we don't have to be unclear. And I love, I love, if you go back and look at what Jesus says, they go, what sign do you show us? You know what he says? Kill me and you'll see. Isn't that what he said? He said, tear down this, you know, destroy this temple and I'll raise it up. What's the sign you show? Kill me. I'll show you. It's awesome. <laughs> Who talks like that? 
So Jesus has all authority. But notice something else. Jesus has all authority over your life, over everything. But notice something else that Jesus just did. Jesus just claimed also to be the true temple. Here he is in the temple, and he says, destroy this temple. What is he saying? I'm the new meeting place between God and man. I am the true meeting place. And that's why, guys, as Christians, we don't have a geographic center. We don't have a holy city. We have no Mecca. We have no Jerusalem. We have no Grand Rapids, Michigan. We have no... (laughs) Center, right? We have no place to do pilgrimages. Thankfully, we have no land we need to fight over, have a holy war, should have told the crusaders. We don't have a center like that. Our true meeting place, our center of our religion is this man, Jesus Christ. He is the true temple. He's the true site of worship. Don't you love that? If he's the temple, he's the true worship. How many of you guys came in here and you started to worship God, but you're struggling because you basically have that swap me to animals and money changers in your head? Okay, You're not able to come and give the worship you'd want to give to God because you're so distracted. Guys, the good news is, is that Jesus is that perfect worship. And connected to him, we have his righteousness. He's a true temple in that it was in him that the perfect, ultimate, final sacrifice was made, guys. Isn't that amazing? There's no need for any animal sacrifices because Jesus himself is the true temple. He has made that ultimate sacrifice. Because the ultimate obstacle between us is not, you know, the commercialization of religion or anything like that. It's our sin. Our sin keeps us from God. And yet he is the true Passover lamb. And so when the judgment comes, if you're trusting in Jesus, he passes right over you. Right? That's what he does. He's the true temple. He's passed over. Two questions for you as we end. Two questions in response to this. The first one is, is one that we talked about in community groups. We have this question in community groups that... You know, imagine Jesus coming to your house, to your temple. What rooms do you not want to let him into? (laughs) He's come wanting to cleanse things, right? He wants to drive out obstacles that are in the way between you and him. He wants to cleanse those things out. There's probably some tables he wants to throw over. And yet when you meet him at the door, what parts do you not want him to enter? Jesus is the kind of uh, savior that he wants to clean things up. He wants to remodel. He wants to do this. This is a part of his furious love. Where are you resisting him today? If your heart was a house with rooms, what room are you saying, okay, okay, not this one, though. (laughs) Yeah, this door doesn't go anywhere, you know, (laughs) right? He's like, well, you know, we've worked on this. What about over here? No, 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 later, you know? Is it the room of your work? Perhaps in your work you have some unethical business practice that you think you can't live without? Like, we couldn't survive if I stopped doing this. He wants to go in that room. He wants to throw that table over. He wants to drive the obstacles out of there. Maybe it's in relationships. Maybe you're in some relationship that's constantly driving you away from God. And he's saying, I want that. You know? Or maybe it's in your relationship some unforgiveness or some bitterness. You're holding on to something. You're just going to fight to the death on this because you don't want the other person to win. Well, I'll tell you what. If you take an own look in your heart, you're not winning. <laughs> you're losing, right? Someone said bitterness is the, you know, the toxin that you take into yourself hoping to hurt others, right? Maybe it's that room. Maybe it's the room of your sexuality. You know, maybe you're like St. Augustine and you're saying, Lord, give me purity, but not yet. You know, that's what he said before he got converted. Maybe it's pornography. It enslaves both men and women. I want to tell you this morning, guys, that Jesus drives that out too. He can free you in that area. He can free you in any area. There's no room that you bring him to and he goes, Oh, I don't do those. You know, like we're talking about the last thing you want to clean, you know, you're like, I don't do windows or whatever. And Jesus is like, oh, yeah, I don't do that thing. 
you know, that's not something that I handle. That's not covered. Or maybe it's the room of your rest. Perhaps you become dependent on alcohol or drugs or food or shopping or something like that to give you peace and joy, which you should be finding in God. You find, oh, this is the only way I can get peace. Guys, this morning, let's stop resisting him. I'm not just talking about you. Let's all stop resisting him. He's come wanting to cleanse us. Let's not resist him. Let's be set free. I've already shown you that Jesus has authority there, right? He has authority. And I've shown you even more that Jesus loves you. When he sees these things in your life, it isn't just like, that really bothers me for no reason. That's an obstacle between you and him. He wants to be closer to you. That's why he has furious love. And so allow him to remove those barriers. Lastly, Jesus has the power. And we just saw like he gets killed and he comes back to biological life three days later. He has power. Romans 8 says, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit that dwells in you. Like you feel dead. You feel like there's certain areas of you that are just dead and can't be fixed. He raises dead people. He raised himself. And so when we take uh, communion today and we worship, I would just ask you to surrender that area. You know, the Lord is, Jesus is there. He's at the door. He's ready to come in. And you just open the door and you say, it's over there. (laughs) I didn't even know what to do about this room. You know, have you guys had that room in your house? Before we moved, we had this extra room that was full of garbage. You couldn't even walk into it. I didn't even know what to do with that room. We had to move. Okay. It was the only way to solve that room. And, and you could just say, Lord, I don't even know what to do with that room, but I open it up to you. Please come in. Please take control. Got one more question for you. Do you share Jesus' zeal here? Do you share Jesus' zeal to create a space where people can meet God unhindered? Is that a passion of yours? Is that a passion of yours? A, a place that people can come and they can inquire and they can learn about the Lord without obstacles. And religion's always trying to put obstacles. I mean, classic obstacle is legalism. It's like, it's like the commandments in here aren't enough. We need to make up others, you know? And then we need to enforce them on each other and everybody that comes in that door, even people that don't know Jesus, we're trying to make them do these things. It's an obstacle. You know, a place that doesn't have legalism. A place that doesn't have commercialism, you know? A place without a thermometer, okay? You guys ever been in a church with a thermometer? Yeah, we went visiting churches when we were looking for a church. And a thermometer, like to raise money, like, do, 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 do. and I'm like, this is not, I mean, it's okay for me, but, you know, like for people that don't know the Lord, like, we can't work with you, you know, you do thermometers, we don't do that. Do you have a zeal for that? Do you have a zeal to create a space here, guys, where people can come and learn about the Lord unhindered without all the, the barriers that we would put in their way? Guys, this, this is simple, okay? The simplicity to this is this, we gather We hear from his word. We worship him. We care for each other throughout the week. Um, The cool thing about all this, guys, is we're all volunteers. I'm a volunteer. You guys are volunteers. We give, we serve, we care for one another. And then the cool thing is we invite other people in here, right? We invite other people in to experience a bit of who Jesus is. Do you have a zeal for that? That zeal that you have is Jesus' zeal. Isn't that cool? It's because you're connected with him. He, he can't help but like transmit some of that zeal to you. And I would just say to you this morning, let that zeal consume you like it consumed Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we, um, we're in awe of your beauty in all areas. 
Um, even in areas that surprise us, like we think about, okay, we're going to talk about Jesus' anger this morning. Um, that can't be beautiful. That can't be glorious. And yet it is. <laughs> Every time we rightly understand who you are, we come away in awe and wonder, wanting to worship you, wanting to give our lives more fully to you. Or there are parts of every one of us that we've just kept closed to you. And Lord, we are prepared this morning to open it up. And so we pray, Lord, as we worship and as we take communion, Lord, that you would um, give us that heart, that heart of openness to you to say, all right, I'm ready. And Lord, we just pray, Lord, too, that each person here that needs help would reach out to somebody in this church for help, to help them to learn how to do all the things that you've commanded by the power of the Spirit. We pray, Lord, that you would just give a real spirit of, like Jamal was saying this morning, freedom in this place. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Church, Menifee. If you would like to know more about the Menifee campus, visit us online at covgrace.org slash Menifee.